0: Well, I'm not sure if you're aware or not, but uh, Pastor Rick and Alan Tonneson, one of our elders, uh, have been in Japan all week, and they've been having just a wonderful time ministering to uh, a Bible institute there and uh, planting seeds and equipping pastors for the work of ministry in Japan. Where I don't know if you're aware, but uh, Japan is just a very, very unchurched, very dark. Um, part of the world. So, we've been glad to have them there, uh, but this morning, we actually heard that um, they're going to be in Japan a little bit longer than expected. Um, it turns out that that uh, Rick and Alan boarded the plane, and they, uh, they were sitting there waiting for other passengers to board, and Rick got into a conversation with a a woman who was seated right next to him, and it turned into an argument about whether or not he was actually in the film North Shore back in the 1980s. (laughs) Yeah. Uh. No, actually, that that didn't really happen. Those are my Photoshop skills. Actually, the reason for the delay was Alan. He went shopping, and they wouldn't let him on the plane because of an outfit he was wearing. Not a good look, Alan. Oh, man. Aaron, where are you at? Forgive me. All right, we're really looking forward to them coming back. Many of you are really going to be looking forward to them coming back after this message today. Uh, but they have had just a wonderful week of ministry, as I said, and I got an email from them this morning. Everything is going well. They're, on their, they're going to be on their way back, and uh, we should have them back with us shortly and look forward to hearing great report from them. There's nothing quite like travel to bring out the best in people. Uh, So, I was was standing in front of one of these little digital kiosks at the St. Louis airport there in Missouri, trying to get the tickets for my bags, you know, the little sticker things that you twist and fold, and and I tried once, twice, three times. The fourth time, there was a lady standing nearby had mercy on me, and she came over to me and said, what's going on here? I I explained to her, and she sent me over to a desk. So I went over and talked with a couple guys, and they shared with me the words that no traveler ever wants to hear. "It's a storm in New York. All the flights are slammed. They're all delayed. You're not going to make your connection in Arizona. There's no way you're getting home tonight. So I went through security and went into the, the terminal waiting area there, got a cup of coffee, and for the next several hours, just sat back and was fascinated by each person who would walk up to the counter and they would get the news and you'd see the just despair come over their faces and the frustration and frustration would turn to anger and i'm sure there was one lady i'm certain there was smoke coming out of her ears Just furious. travel it it doesn't bring out the best in us so very often it often brings out the worst and it's, and it's during times like that where we look at a passage like this and we just say, James, what were you thinking? This doesn't make any sense. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. How am I blessed as I go through this trial? Things are going so wrong, so out of control. And steadfast? We've talked about this the past couple weeks. Pastor Rick has talked about it as a spiritual toughness, right? And really what it is, it's an unwavering trust and obedience to God in the midst of of difficulty. Well, how can I be expected to keep my cool when everything just seems to unravel? Don't I deserve to blow off a little steam? I mean, when the kids are going berserk and the car won't start and my boss has been at my throat all week long get bad news from the doctor, lie in bed with insomnia for the fifth night in a row. Maybe family uninvites me to Thanksgiving because of my narrow Christian views, or what about when you discover that your spouse has been living a deep, dark secret for the past several months. Aren't there times when my behavior is justified by the circumstances? I mean, shouldn't I be able to raise my voice and slam a few doors when people have treated me wrongly? Or put the pedal to the floor, cut a few people off because I need to get to work on time? Or maybe, maybe, maybe look at those pictures online because of how lonely I've been. Am I not justified in distancing myself from others, maybe cutting off communication, at least for a while, because of the wrongs these people have done to me? Or, or post that, that horrible thing that someone did to me on my, all over my social media so everyone, really, I'm just doing everyone else a favor, steer clear of that person. Or what about time honored. Faithful biblical teaching and interpretation of a certain passage, shouldn't I be able to just uh, kind of redact, kind of change it a little bit because of how it's now impacting someone I love? Just like Jesus did in his famous Sermon on the Mount, James. Turns everything upside down when he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And that's our cue to ask that age-old question, you know, the one that three-year-olds know and love and say over and over and over again, why? Why, James? Why am I blessed when I remain steadfast under trial? Why is it better to trust and obey God through difficult times And James teases out the reasons in the next few verses. And let's just cut right to the chase and get to it. It's better to trust and obey God through difficulty because of the life that He offers. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So, why is a a person who continues to trust God in the midst of difficulty, why is that person blessed? Well, James says, well, they've remained steadfast, and and after the trial is over, they're going to receive a reward. They're going to receive a crown. Now, in Roman times… Those in the Colosseum, they would would receive a laurel wreath, a a crown made of leaves. This is what they earned. They deserved it. They They had sweated. They had bled in some cases, suffered, endured, tenaciously persevered, and they came out on top. They were victorious, and the wreath is placed on their heads. James tells us there's a reason for all this straining, suffering, excruciating perseverance that it takes to trust and obey God through difficulty. The reason for doing it is because of the crown, the crown that has been promised. It's a crown of life, he says. We need to be careful here not to think that this crown merely represents life. You know when i've accomplished some different things uh in my lifetime i've received medals or trophies or that sort of thing and those things represent the accomplishment that that i you know did but that trophy it doesn't really have much value in and of itself i mean that that little figure on top it may look like gold but it's really you tap it it's just cheap, cheap plastic and the wood, you know, is recycled or whatever. It's just, you know, it's, there's nothing of, of innate value in that thing in itself, and its usefulness. Well, what am I going to do with it? I can set up on the shelf, let it collect dust, maybe use it a paperweight on my desk. But when when James talks about the crown of life here, he's not talking about a crown that represents life. He's talking about a crown that is life. Life is the reward. Life is the crown. And before we start thinking, okay, that sounds pretty good to me, what do I need to do to earn this life, this crown of life? Do I need to be some type of super devout Christian? Do I need to cancel my cable and get rid of my internet and, you know, go up in the hills and do chants, things like that? Or maybe, I, you know, I just need to, to suffer more than others. And so, so I've gone through some really hard things in my life, and hey, I'm getting the crown, but I don't know about the rest of you people here. He's not saying that. This crown of life, it's a crown, it's something that has been promised to all believers. Look at what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4a. He said, henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And we say, oh, well, we understand. Paul, you're kind of like uh, super Christian, kind of like Jesus Jr. here. You've done everything but walk on water. And uh, you, if if anyone deserves a crown of life, it's you. But look at what Paul says next. Not only to me but also to all who have loved His appearing. Peter reminds Christians, 1 Peter 5:4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's called the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, the crown of life. It's that final reward that every believer is going to receive because of their faith in Christ. And you might say, well... If everyone's going to receive this crown, then how is that motivation for me to be steadfast in trials? I mean, everybody's getting it, so I could just kind of float by. I can kind of do my own thing. Why should I continue to trust and obey God through difficulty? And I think James would say, because that's what faith is. When James says that you're blessed when you remain steadfast under trial, When he says that, he's talking about the living out of your faith. He's saying this is what the people of God do. They place their trust in Him. They link arms with Him. They exchange their old life of rebellion, and they they live now for God. And and wasn't the, the, the greatest trial ever the one we first placed our trust in Christ for? You know, the greatest tri- tri- trial, mankind, the greatest test we have ever faced wasn't a uh, nuclear uh, holocaust. It wasn't the AIDS virus. It's not, it's not terrorism. It's the wrath of God. It's the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, we're all in this incredibly dangerous Position with our Creator. And and when we we come to realize that, and we come to see our sinfulness and that we can't fix ourselves, we say, Jesus, I place all my trust in you and what you did in paying for all of my rebellion on that cross. I commit my life to you. Thank you for dying on that cross. That's how it all begins. We place our trust in Him for the biggest thing that we have ever faced or ever will face. But it doesn't end there. It was never meant to end there. See, when you and I continue trusting and obeying God through difficult things that come into our lives, we're not doing anything novel. We're not doing anything new. We're putting into practice that faith we had in Jesus Christ from the very beginning. Last week we had a baptism, and we had uh, four uh, young students up here. It was such a good time, and I had the opportunity to interview some of these kids. And one of them was Cecilia Duarte. And, and as I was interviewing her, trying to figure out is is her faith real? Does she have a, a genuine testimony of faith in Jesus Christ? I asked her, "What does your faith in Christ mean to you?" And and she said, "This. It means trusting in Jesus for every hard thing." that comes into my life. And at first I said, okay, well, let's talk about sin. Let's talk about the real reason. What did He do on the cross? And and we got through that, but then I circled back and I thought, you know, she hit it right on the head. I do trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. That's where it starts, but it can't end there my trust has to continue on. If I can trust Him for my eternal soul, then I have to be able to trust Him for the everyday things in life. It needs, my faith needs to penetrate every aspect of my life. Like this morning when I got my coffee and I put a little cream inside, that cream just doesn't stay there in one little clump. It diffuses out. It's just like that. My faith in Jesus, it needs to diffuse out to every single molecule in my life. My trust in God, it needs to flow into every struggle, every difficulty, every awkward, painful moment, and it needs to powerfully impact it. One pastor wrote this, a genuine Christian is not someone who at one point in time made a profession of faith in Christ, but he's a person who demonstrates true faith by ongoing love for God that cannot be damaged, much less destroyed by troubles and afflictions, no matter how severe or long-lasting. Our faith needs to go on. It needs to continue as we fight and as we struggle and as we face trials of many kinds. Look at verse 12 again, end of verse 12. He said, he will receive a crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Crown of life. It's definitely a reward. James makes it clear. The Crown of life is a reward. And it's definitely something that There's something inside of me that actively earns it, but i got to be careful here. It's not anything that I can take credit for. It's not anything that I can take credit for. He says, God has promised this to those who love Him. Yes, I do love Him, but I love Him because He first loved me. I can't take credit for any any trust, any faith, any super love that I have for Him. It all starts with what He did in sending a Savior for me. My faith, my obedience to Him, all of that is contingent on who God is and what He's done for me. When I travel from one place to another on a plane, I get the reward that comes from being on that plane and making it… I get the destination just like all the other passengers, but I can't take any credit for getting there. It was the plane that carried us to that destination. All we had to do was trust enough to to take a seat, really, and then to continue to trust through every shudder, every drop, every turbulent bump along the way. Why do I continue to trust it, rely on it, stake my life on it, because of what it is. It's a plane, and it promises to get me to that destination. Why do I trust and obey God through difficulty? Well, one of the reasons is because of what He's promised. It's the destination, the life that He offers. And traveling with Him, it may not always be easy. He said, you in this world, you have tribulation, but man, the destination that He takes us to is so worth it. Let's never lose sight of that. It's better to trust and obey God through difficulty because of the life that He offers. But James doesn't stop there. He goes on. It's better to trust and obey God through difficulty because of the hard, hard times. They don't justify bad behavior. We like to think that they do, but James says, no way, they don't. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He Himself tempts no one. But each person, when he is tempted, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You know, one of the biggest temptations that we have after we have given in to temptation is to blame others, isn't it? To point to someone else and say, This is your fault. That's what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. God comes to Adam, he says, what's going on here? What does Adam do? Points. God comes to Eve. What's going on here? She points. It was the serpent that made me do it. And James here says some people, they blame God. They blame God for tempting them. Have you ever done that? God, I, if you had not allowed this difficulty to come into my life, I would not have done what I did. There was a uh, Scottish poet by the name of Robert Burns, speaking to God, he writes this, "'Thou knowest, thou hast formed me with the passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong.'" You know what he's saying? He's saying, God, you're the one responsible. You're the one who made me with these desires, and because of that, these desires, they lead me the wrong way. It's not me. It's not my fault. It's your fault, God. You gave me these desires. Some Jewish rabbis taught the yetzer hara, means the evil impulse, and there there was one group of rabbis that had a saying that basically has God regretting that He made human beings with this evil tendency. So it's not, it's not our fault. It's God. He's the one to blame. He's the one who put these evil impulses in you that lead you towards wrong. God, how dare you? I blame you. And James says, no, 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 no. No way. You can't say it's God's fault. God doesn't tempt anyone. He writes, "Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God can't be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one." You know, if I were to try to tempt you to do something, maybe I'd come up to you after service and I'd, I'd say, "Hey, Jeff. Come over here, Jeff. I want to tell you something. I got some really good stuff on Pastor Adam." And I'd be tempting Jeff to gossip. We all know that gossip is wrong. And it would be wrong for Jeff to say, Hey, yeah, I want to hear it. Let's go. It'd be wrong for Jeff to do that. But just as it's wrong for Jeff to give in to that temptation, it was wrong of me to tempt Jeff to begin with. And what was it that was tempting me? There was evil inside of me tempting me to tempt Jeff. And, And James says, God can't be tempted. If God were to tempt you to do wrong, then He Himself would be doing wrong. And God can't be tempted to do wrong because it's not true to His nature. And God is absolutely true to His nature. There's nothing evil in Him. James points out He can't be tempted. He's holy. He's holy. He's completely set apart from all that is evil. He can't be touched by it. He can't be affected by it. You know, the sun shines down, and it can it can illuminate beautiful things. And it comes down onto the ocean. We see the sparkling of the ocean. It's just magnificent. Oh, the sun is just a, it. It just brings beauty out of all things. But the sun could also shine down its pure sunlight, come down to something that is completely impure, something that we wouldn't want to have any do with. Maybe it's just a steaming pile of trash, and the sun rays are coming down on it, and they're giving light to that. But the sunlight itself, it's not affected by it. God's holy. He's not contaminated by evil. He's not touched by it. He himself doesn't tempt. You might say, well, God tests us, right? And isn't testing? Well, that's kind of just a roundabout way of saying he tempts us, right? He doesn't tempt us. He tests us, though. And those are kind of the same things, right? But it's actually not. You see, the tests that come our way or the the trials that come our way, they're things that happen to us on the outside, right? I mean, you could argue, well, you know, I've got a sickness and it's internal, but, but you know what I mean. It's, it's something, it's a circumstance that, uh, that affects us, that we're involved in. The, the testing gives opportunity for me to do wrong, but the testing in and of itself doesn't necessarily lead me down that path. It can lead, it, it's an opportunity to make a wrong decision. So, I could get angry with God for allowing me to get sick. Or I could curse God for allowing my car to break down. I shake a fist. Or I could take justice into my own hands and take God's job and try to avenge myself for the wrongs that have been done against me. But these things, they, they happen on the outside, and they're opportunities, but the temptation comes from somewhere else. The desire to respond in a bad way that comes from somewhere else. And James makes that clear right here in verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. See, temptation doesn't come from God. It comes from me. Temptation isn't something that happens on the outside. It happens on the inside. And depending on what sinful desires this heart that has been turned away from God is leading me to have, I may or may not be tempted by all kinds of different things. You know, not all people are tempted by the same set of circumstances. So, a while back, this was many years ago now, uh, Melissa and I got invited over to one of her friend's houses for dinner. And we went over, and we were, she was getting dinner ready, and she had to run into the other room for some, some reason. And as she did, her roommate walked in and offered us some dessert. And I made some excuse like, well, you know, we haven't had dinner yet. Maybe later, you know, well, thanks. Nice meeting you. And, and she left the room. Her friend comes back in and she said, did, did my roommate offer you some dessert? And we said, well, yeah. And she's like, you didn't eat it, did you? I'm like, no. I'm so glad you didn't eat that. Those, those brownies, they were special brownies. <laughs> and we went, Oh. But you know what? Finding out that those brownies had marijuana in them, that didn't affect me in the slightest. I wasn't tempted. I didn't have the desire inside to do that. Now, if I did have that desire to get high on weed, I would have been desiring that my mind and my body be dominated by, be dulled by an ingested substance. And we know from 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And that's a topic for a different day but if I had had that internal desire, I would have been facing temptation. But as it was, the brownies sat there on the counter all night, and that didn't bother me at all. I might have thought that her friend or roommate needed a little help, but it didn't affect me at all because the the temptation wasn't in the brownies. The opportunity was there, but the desire wasn't inside of me. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden. The serpent comes comes to Eve, lies, says God's trying to prevent you from experiencing all the goodness that you could have, which is in God's rightful, you know, He has a right to give to His creatures or keep from them anything. It's it's His prerogative. But the serpent comes to her. He says, hey, this is what's going on. But then Eve was the one who desired it and wanted it and believed that God was keeping something from her. Look at Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, okay, opportunity, it was a delight to the eyes. I see the tree. It is what it is, but now there's something in me that's recognizing I want this. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. The temptation came from inside her. It was it was all her. Her heart desired it. Just like the Bible says, our hearts are deceitful above all things. They're desperately wicked. Our hearts lead us astray. And that's what James is getting at here. When we face temptation, it's not not God that's tempting you. Trials that come into our lives, they don't justify us turning our backs on God and disobedience. If anything, they reveal in us those inward desires for which we're trusting in Christ for salvation from right? We can't say, well, God, you allowed these circumstances in my life, so I guess it's okay for me to throw in the towel and just uh, get on with the rest of these sinners over here. Can't do that. When it comes to temptation, we have no one to blame but ourselves. And then James goes on to spell out exactly what happens when we give in to this temptation. And it's not good. It's better to trust and obey God through difficulty because of the life that he offers because hard times don't justify bad behavior, and because doing it your way will kill you. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Given a temptation, it is a deadly process, and it starts with the desires in our hearts. We're tempted by our own desires. The word James uses for desire is this word epithumia, meaning we we translate it lust, and often when we think of lust, we're always thinking of something sinful, something bad, something that we should stay away from. But when the Bible uses this term epithumia, so often it, it just is indicating a strong inward desire, and God has created us with strong inward desires, right? And they're good, God gave us a desire for hunger so we wouldn't starve, gave gave you a desire for rest so that you wouldn't get worn out and die. He gave us a desire for sex so that we wouldn't go extinct. There's something right about saying God gave us these desires, but it's the application of those desires that is the problem. It's, it's when we have these God-given desires, and now we start looking in other places. Or we start looking all around. Instead of what God has designed as the appropriate fulfillment and satisfaction of these desires, we start looking at all these other places. And that's when we get ourselves into a ton of trouble. The eating is good. Gluttony is not. Sleep is normal. Laziness is wrong getting married is great, but being intimate with someone outside of marriage, that's against God's will. So why do our desires go out of control? Why do they tempt us from, being in, from going out in God's will to being outside of God's will? And it's because of step two, because of the deception that takes place. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed. Those are hunting terms, right? Fishing terms attached to the idea of baiting a trap. And bait does two things. First, it appeals to our natural desires, right? No fisherman, you know, puts something that is undesirable to a fish on the end of the hook. It's not not going to accomplish anything. No, you put something that is going to be extremely attractive to that fish. You're going to put something shiny, something tasty, something that they can can sense and that that pulls them towards. It's attractional, Bait appeals to our natural desires. It also hides consequences. Now, I've, I've heard that some fishermen will, will take little marshmallows and they'll put the hook inside the marshmallow. And the reason marshmallow is because it com- they can completely conceal that hook in the marshmallow. So That fish has no idea there's a trap lying inside. That's what our hearts do, don't they? They lie to us. They deceive us. When we're tempted to bend the truth to cover up something some that we did, we're not thinking about the consequences of how much worse it's going to be when we're found out. We're stuffing Hostess cupcakes in our face. We're not thinking about the, the pounds that we're putting on, or we're not thinking about the, the bad habits we're forming here, or maybe we're just telling ourselves, you know, the pleasure of this moment, it's so, it's so worth the consequences of the next. Our hearts deceive us, and they lure us towards sin. And then what do we do? Well, we disobey. We take the bait, right? Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and we disobey. You know, desire is a type of emotion, but disobedience, that's an act of the will. Children act on their feelings. When my daughter was two, which was four four years ago now, um, she, if she felt something, it drove her instantly to, act, to action. So, if she was thirsty, she'd be screaming. If she was hungry, she'd go straight to the fridge, open it up, and stuff would start flying down all over the place. If she saw a toy that she wanted, man, she'd just go rip it out of someone's hand. No thought. She'd just do it. But One of the things that sets us apart from children as adults is that we're to act on the basis of our will. And so I may be hungry, and that, that desire may be strong. Maybe I'm even getting a little hangry, which may be some of you guys right now as it nears uh, noon. I may be hangry, but that doesn't mean that I, I just go and stuff my face full of food. No, it may not be time to eat, or maybe I just ate a little while ago. And I don't go to just what I think is going to bring me maximum satisfaction in that instant. I'm not going to Ruth's Chris and ordering a 40-pound steak and say, bring it out to me, you know, and put a crown on my head and a robe, you know. (laughs) I'm not doing that because I don't want to go broke. I'm reasoning and I'm deciding how I am going to respond to these inward desires. Part of growing up is is, is deciding I'm not going to do certain things because that may not be beneficial for me. I I don't do this because it's wrong or because it's hurtful or because it's harmful. I am going to do these things maybe even when I don't feel like doing them because that's what's right and that's what's good This is what happens when we give in to temptation. We're making an intellectual decision to disobey God, and James says, once you've done that, you've locked in the consequences. Consequences are death. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That's where it always leads. Some people will tell you that all roads lead to God, and you can tell yourself that over and over and over again, but it's it's not true jesus said i am the way the truth and the life he went on to say no one comes to the father except through me all roads may not lead to god but i can tell you this all sin leads to death all sin leads to death james uses the example of something being born humans they give birth to humans monkeys to monkeys turtles turtles platypus Plati- to platypus, not platypi. And this is the way that it is. This is the way that it's always been. In the same way, sin always gives birth to death. You can count on it. It's going to happen every time. Galatians 6, 7, Paul says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will He also reap. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Jesus said in Mark 4, nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. You can think you can hide it. You can think you can get away. Jesus says, it's all going to be brought to light. James says, it's all going to result in death. We can tell ourselves over and over again that our circumstances justify our actions, or that we can sneak by without the consequences. Our hearts fill with desire. We're deceived into thinking that desire can best be fulfilled outside of God's lines. Then we make a willful choice to take the bait, and the end result is death. Our way is deadly. It always has been. That's why we needed a Savior in the first place. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And if you place your trust in Christ, you've recognized that your way leads to death. You've looked to the cross. You've trusted in Jesus' sacrifice that paid for your rebellion, and now you're free to live God's way, trusting him, obeying him. Our way led to death. His way leads to life, and it's so much better. It's bigger than the difference between dark and light, between a dead battery, full power, bigger than the difference between no connection and five full bars. It's the difference between life and death blessed are those who remain steadfast under trial, those who trust and obey God through difficulty, because they've stepped off the road towards death and are walking with the one who brings life. That's exactly what James drives home in these last few verses. Look at verse 16. We'll finish out here in just a moment. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Coming from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Last thing it's better to trust and obey God through difficulty because everything that is good comes from him. Don't be deceived, he says. Don't fall for the lies that tell you that you're better off on your own. That God doesn't have your best interest in mind, that He's holding you down, that He's trying to kill your joy, that that He's trying to make your life miserable. Don't buy into that. Realize every good and every perfect gift is from above. Every good thing you enjoy comes from God, not from Apple or Samsung. Technology is great, but think about your ability to see and your ability to hear to touch, to taste, to experience, to be moved, to be thrilled, to be astonished. Think about where all that came from. It all came from God. It came from the Father of lights, the one who created the sun, moon, and stars that, that shower down this beautiful radiant life that ge- light that gives life to everything. In the same way, God pours down good on His people. And unlike these lights in the sky, God doesn't change. The sun, it gives us great light, but it moves away each day, doesn't it? And if you've been in there on a hot day and you planted yourself in the shade, you know that after a while you have to move, because the sun's moving, the shade's changing. The moon, some nights it gives off glorious light. Others, I don't even know where this thing is. How reliable is that? God's not like that. He doesn't change. Pastor Rick talked about, about it back in April when he talked about God's immutability. He said, God, God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you know the really good news? His good plans for us don't change either. They remain the same. You can, you can count on it. You can trust it. You can rely on it. He's always been good, and He always will be. And here's the evidence. Because I know some of us right now, we we have so many things that we could point to and say, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And you start questioning God's goodness. James says, let me point point you to the most amazing thing God has done of His own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. See, we're dead in our sinful rebellion. Biggest threat ever. You were separated. You were alienated. You were without God, without hope, without God in the world. But now, Ephesians 2.13, Now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And it wasn't your own doing. It was by his own will that James points out there. You know, dead people, they don't even know they're dead. They don't have the desire to come back. They couldn't do anything about it if they did have the desire. You know, babies, no baby has been born because they said, I think I want to try this thing, the thing out called life. I'd like to, I'd like to be conceived and be born. No, no baby does that. It's not by their will. They don't have anything to do with it. In the same way, James says, it's only by God's goodwill that you've been brought forth from being hopelessly lost in your rebellion. You've been brought into this life-giving, joy-filled, future-transforming relationship with Him, and there's nothing better than that. God's given you this life-giving message of Jesus. Your trust is in Him. He's lifted you out of the pit. James says, that life you have now that hope you have, it's now a testimony to all the rest of creation. You know, the greatest gift that we've been given is the salvation of our souls, but God didn't save you just so that you could be rescued from eternal punishment. There's a greater purpose. Your salvation has been given. Jesus Christ was given that all creation might see how glorious how thoroughly good God is. James says, you're like first fruits. A farmer might go out into his crop, and he might collect a few pieces of fruit and inspect them, see how this is turning out. And from those first fruits, he has an idea of how the rest of the crop is turning out. That's, That's the way we are. Those whom God has poured his goodness out on in saving us, in rescuing us, of giving us a hope and a future. That is a testimony to all the rest of creation that God's goodness is coming, and it's coming in fuller, more uh, manifest ways. You know, Paul says in Romans that all creation is groaning, it's waiting. We're the first fruits, we're the evidence of God's goodness. He's good. He's proven it. And you and I should trust Him. Even in those difficult times, we should obey Him because it's so much better to trust and obey God through difficulty. It's so much better to remain steadfast through the storm. It's better because of the life that He promises. It's better because hard times don't justify bad behavior and your way will kill you. Why would you go back to that way? Stay with God's way. Because everything that is good comes from Him. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this Word from James that is not condemning of us, Lord. It's, it's, it's pointing us, it's reminding us of how wonderful You are how gracious You have been on undeserving people who have nothing in and of themselves that we can hold up and say, let me into heaven because of this. We can't save ourselves, Lord. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We couldn't even desire it. It's all You. You've been good to us. And so, Lord, as we are face circumstances of various kinds, some extremely hard, some that kind of just rub us the wrong way, May we see through the deception. May we hold fast to you, trust you, remain obedient to you, be steadfast because of the life that is found, the life that we have found in you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.